Ask 10 statisticians how to calculate the standard deviation of, say, 50 data points, and you'll probably get a common answer. But ask 10 racehorse trainers how to optimally prepare a thoroughbred for the Kentucky Derby, and you might get 10 very different answers. So how about with 10 investment advisors? What if you asked them how to design the optimal portfolio? Would their answers suggest investing is more like statistics or science as with chemistry or more like an art as with training horses or masterfully smoking brisket or a blend of all of these? And when you ask your financial advisors where their own investment philosophies and guiding principles came from, do you hear a coherent response? Or does it sound more like no such philosophy or principles exist? Today, in part one of a two-part episode, your co-hosts give the backstories about how they formed their investment philosophies, including what they once believed and now question, and what led them to that shift in their thinking. This discussion sets up their extension of these topics into next week's part two, when they'll explain in greater detail where that shift in their thinking finally led them, what they believe today, and why. Get ready also today to hear them critique the dominant portfolio design methodology of the last five decades, commonly called modern portfolio theory, and hear them discuss how the spread of readily available company data and inexpensive computing power has permanently changed the investment landscape and contributed to much sharper sell-offs like the S&P 500's 35% drop in just five weeks in early 2020. If you like hearing people's intellectual journeys, stay tuned because this may be the most autobiographic episode your hosts have recorded yet. Get ready for all that and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host Roshan Lungani here, as always, with Adrian Nicholson and Eric Olson. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. How about you, fellas? I'm doing good. Had a good weekend with some family and friends. Um, just been watching a lot of sports, but uh, I'm a little bit worried about the the gas lines to fill up my car. Have you, have you been seeing this, uh, Roshan or Eric? I have not seen lines, but tell me what you're. Uh, tell me about it. I'm just seeing people post on like social media saying like fill up your car now, um, waiting a little bit of lines. And I feel like it's all my fault because on a few episodes ago, we talked about inflation. I was like, the one thing I don't want to see is gasoline lines. And a few weeks later, they're here. So I've been thinking about that. I guess I kind of messed it up. (laughs) (laughs) So that actually touches on a couple of our episodes, the one on inflation and on cybersecurity, because it was a (laughs) cybersecurity attack on that one. That one fuel supply uh, or pipeline operator in the Southeast that led to this. So for all our listeners in the Southeast, man, we, uh, please send us a photo. Well, yeah. And I have, Adrian, when you say you've seen it on social media, have you seen lines in Virginia 
Uh, was it local or was it from other parts? Of the yeah, I've seen uh, not no crazy lines, but I've just seen some uh, people like sitting in line like late at night and just people saying, "Oh, get it, get it while you can." Just it's just like I'm seeing it like here and there. So now I know it's a uh, it's definitely a thing now. But like Eric said, we touched on it, it's a cybersecurity tact, and on the inflation episode, I was like, I just don't want to experience this in my life. Next thing you know, it's it's here. So just got to be ready for it, I guess. You jinxed the entire country. I did. I did, Eric. I have that power, apparently. Well, that now I, I'm supposed to go drive up to New Jersey this weekend. I hope I don't get stuck up there if I can't get gas to come back home. <laughs> I bet all the people with electric vehicles are just laughing at yeah. us right now. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. I, I, have not, I, I hope we don't get those lines. I've seen, like, I've read about the lines in the 70s, right? So uh, that's what I'm worried about now. Right. Hopefully it's just internet hype. Another uh, another version of GameStop. <laughs> well, so I'm a little older than you guys, so I have sat in those lines, and they are absolutely no fun. So I'm I'm not eager for that at all. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't happen. So, gentlemen, today we've got an interesting uh, episode. Adrian, do you want to introduce it? Yeah, of course, Roshan. We got a. Another exciting episode kind of centered around investments today. We're going to kind of talk about our investment approach, our methodology, and how we kind of got there. I think it's going to be a, a really exciting topic for our listeners today to kind of get a, a, a deep look at our practice and how we've kind of implemented our investment approaches over time, how we kind of fine-tune them, and overall our like theme and how we, how we came to. I think it's going to be really good because if you if you look online there are just a broad range of different like investment practices strategies that people implement some you've never heard of before some more common than others but we're just going to kind of tackle our approach today just to kind of get the listeners to see a little bit of overview how we how we implement it um do either one of you want to start off today with a little bit of an intro on how you came to your kind of investment practice i'll add something to to that and I'll tell you, I feel like I've been looking for investment methodology that makes sense from you know, before I started in the industry, back when I was in, in school and studying investing. And what I've learned over time is there are a lot of different ways people can successfully uh, make money through investing and that you've got to find what uh, resonates with you. Right. And w- what I mean by that is, you know, I always talk about how Warren Buffett's one of my one of the um, my favorites, and you know, one of the greatest investors of all time. And uh, you know, he's considered a value investor, uh, which means he's looking for undervalued securities. But at the same time, um, uh, he's said many times, you can't have value without growth, right? You need a growing company. And interestingly enough, his firm Berkshire Hathaway is uh, was a undervalued company that essentially was dying right so he just he you could you could argue that that was actually initially purchasing that firm what that company wasn't a great move but what he's done from it has been has been phenomenal um so that's just an example of value investing now when i started in the industry everything was about um modern portfolio theory which is supposed to be the most efficient way to invest when you consider risk and return and that's where I started, and it sort of evolved over time. So when I started working with clients, uh, to simplify it, as I, as I like to do, it's really the split of your portfolio 
between stocks and bonds and the various uh, categories beneath them, subcategories of stocks and bonds, to make sure your portfolio is efficient. That's where I started, and uh, and you know over time I became um, less of a fan of it. It just, to me it seemed like it just didn't work for for multiple reasons of what we that will that we'll get into, but. That's where I started. Was was you know you get this portfolio of um, of uh, funds. It, back then it was mu- mainly mutual funds, just because ETFs weren't really out yet. But mutual funds of stocks and bonds, and then you rebalance the portfolio, usually uh, anywhere from twelve to twenty four months, and, and that was kind of it. Uh, that's where I started. Now I I found that. I didn't think it actually worked effectively, so I've shifted from there. But Eric, let me ask you, how did you start out uh, when you first started investing, either you know, professionally, I, it's probably the way I'd, I'd start. I had been in a role as a trader rather than as, an, I would say, an investment advisor. So I was personally designing on, based on math and statistics methods of short-term trades that would have a probabilistic um, edge in producing a profit on that trade. And so when I made the shift from that approach, a statistical approach into, and as a trader and as a trading systems designer into being an, uh, an investment advisor and a financial planner, I recognized I needed to make a change because it was not going to work either in in the framework of the relationship with clients that that I had uh, or within the compliance structure in which I was operating to uh, sit there and just make trades, statistically based trades for clients all the time. So at that point, as you just indicated, Roshan, the dominant way of thinking or really the only way of thinking that had been introduced to me was as you pointed out modern portfolio theory the view that with a indeed with a bit of math um stemming back to some nobel prize winning work that was done by some economists at the university of chicago in the early 50s um that with that bit of math you should be able to identify the optimal mix of different building blocks for a portfolio some large u.s some large uh for international some small u.s some small international emerging markets bonds of various kinds etc insofar as each of those asset classes we call them has a track record of how it has behaved in the past behavior measured in terms of how much it's grown how wildly it swings how how much it swings in tandem with or in opposition to other candidates for inclusion in that portfolio knowing all of that about the track record that they've established should allow you to say well if there's broad consistency in the behavior of these kinds of asset classes in the future with what we've seen in the past then this would be a good mix that balances limiting some of the swings but at the same time getting decent growth and and so i accepted that um but over time my my thinking has shifted and i can answer this first if you'd like but was there something specifically that 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 
uh, any specific event, time period, or anything like that that had you realize that this wasn't right for you or your practice or your clients? Oh, I think it was probably that seminal moment that affected so many advisors who came into this career in the early 2000s. And that was after the internet bubble had burst and people saw the, what would I say, the hazards of highly concentrated portfolios in those days the highly concentrated portfolios in the lead up to the internet bubble bursting was uh, of tremendous overweight on tech stocks in the aftermath people of that got gospel and said they need to diversify but even the diversifiers myself included during that downturn in 2008 uh, credit crisis learned that in the in the worst of times those supposed um advantages of diversification all disappear because pretty much all of the asset classes with one or two exceptions gold and u.s treasuries all the asset classes correlated in their behaviors there wasn't really a at that moment at least a good diversifier and so i realized hmm we don't we have diversification in, in the good and, and moderately good times, we don't have genuine diversification in the worst of times. What's the solution here? My time frame for my thought process was actually pretty similar, uh, but I, I got to it in a different way. So Eric, what you had just described of um, in 2000, um, you know, the bottom in 2009, but really started in October of 2007, was just that no matter what you owned in the public space, you were losing money. And I don't know if you remember back then, but but there were very popular real estate investments back then that also lost money because it was a real estate bubble. So, so not only were your public investments losing, but a major component of the um, uh, private investments also were, um, weren't, weren't a savior for you at that, at that time. It's interesting when you compare that to I, I was just um, uh, listening to a book about the um, about uh, the you know the five market crashes, and they talk about how uh, a lot of these crashes in the past had components that were uh, where they needed liquidity, specifically Black Monday with portfolio insurance, and that liquidity is gone when things are going down. You don't have that level of liquidity. I think you have a similar impact on diversification, but I'm going to take that a step further and just mention. During that time frame, I had a client that retired a little bit after the tech bubble in 2000. And, it, and this always sticks out to me because between 2000 and 2010, there were, uh, in a, the average modern portfolio theory portfolio didn't make anything, right? Because you had the markets uh, crashed and then they, kind of, they recovered by 2010, which if you look at it just from a market perspective and the timing, a lot of that... Uh, it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. But at the same time, if you're someone who's retired and you know we're plan- someone's retiring, in this case, the client was 70, we were planning enough till age 100. So we were planning 30 years for the rest of their life, and they lost a third of their retirement life to no gains in their portfolio, which has a devastating impact on their retirement. Right When, when we're building this financial plan and we're using these assumptions as, as far as growth goes um uh we've got 
we need the growth, right? Most people need that growth to be able to retire. If you have a third of your retirement with no growth, it's, it's devastating. So that was where I saw both, uh, what I call it, it was real world data, but, but what I'll call pure finance, like the harder side of finance, where we talk about the numbers and the data, but I also had a corresponding softer side where we look at just the impact on someone's, someone's real life. And that, that to me was, was, uh, um, very telling that this is just not going to work effectively for what I do. But and by this, I mean telling people to put all their money into modern portfolio theory. And then um, a very popular phrase in the investment world is specifically during the that 2007 to nine uh, timeframe was buy and hope instead of buy and hold. Right. So that, that's kind of what I felt like then we were using modern portfolio theory and they had funds. We would buy those funds. We would make adjustments and rebalance, but to a certain degree, we would buy and hope, and it just had to had to work out. So I, I think now I had been researching things along the way, but what's also uh, difficult in, in for what we do as advisors is is uh, certain things you aren't able to execute on, right? And it's not like I had a lot of things I couldn't execute on, but I'm thinking particularly I had to change clearing firms. Uh, about three or four years ago, which is a very um, time-consuming. You lose you lose a quarter to six months of your work just trying to do something like this. But I had to do that to be able to execute on some of these strategies I thought would lead to better performance, and they have. But uh, my my point is that at the beginning, I'd said there's a lot of ways you can invest your money, and you've got to figure out what works for you, what fits your per- portfolio, your comfort level. Um, uh, and what you, what, what, you know, there are all a lot of different ways where you have a good historical track record, right? So it's got to fit your comfort level. Uh, and you've got to have some evidence that performance is there. And I put it that way because you have the disclosures and disclaimers on everything that past performance, you know, is not a guarantee of future performance and so on, but you've got to, uh, um, uh, put the odds in your favor, Eric, kind of like you said, with your trades, they showed a statistical edge of performance not a guarantee right a statistical edge right it's probabilistic yes so going back to uh what what you had said we both had a similar experience with modern portfolio theory where we we used it we were trained we were taught uh and and it's Mm -hmm. still trained and taught today you know quite frankly as by a lot of firms is the way to go but then for similar reasons we decided we needed to either adjust it or build on it where did you go from there when you saw that, okay, this is this does not do exactly what I'm looking for? Where'd you, what was your next step or next next move? In my case, it was uh, I, it took a bit. It took a bit from, I'd say roughly 2000 well, the bottoming process of the credit, the credit crisis was, as you pointed out, in March of 2009. And initially, I guess I would say my my concern was is that the down the the correction wasn't completed, um, and I expected that there would be a dead cap bounce coming out of the bottom of March of 2009, and that we would right up until about 2010 uh, or middle of 2010 with the recovery that we had in that. Portion, I thought that was probably just presaging another big leg down and we would put in new lows. And 
Uh, I thought that for a variety of reasons, but uh, without necessarily going into why precisely I thought that, my, my posture at that point was then to look for some additional diversifiers that would, in some ways, mimic the lessons that I had learned as a trader, which included the ability to short. And so I was looking for things that were wouldn't they weren't going to take over the portfolio, but they would be um, layered into these portfolios that would hedge against another big downturn. And of course, what I didn't understand was that with the Fed pouring money in at the pace that it was, there was not any realistic way in which those markets could go down. Um, that really, truly, the lesson of don't fight the Fed, I think, is a very uh, painfully learned one for me. So um, I took a very, very cautious posture for another, I would say, uh, almost two years thinking, you know, we had the downturn in 2011, another downturn in 2012. And I was thinking is, well, is this it? Is this, have we just moved a little higher and are we now ready for another leg down? But I, I realized, Eric, I think your, your own, your, your beliefs are wrong. Your, or at least your understanding is incomplete. Your emotions are also a factor here. What can you do to appropriate some of the lessons of when you were a trader that defeated what I think is the chief enemy of most good investing and for that matter, most good trading, which is emotionally overriding your, your method. And even if the method is modern portfolio theory, I will, I hasten to add that. And by the way, I'll also hasten to add, and I think we should circle back to this later in this conversation, that I still do use a generous dose of modern portfolio theory in my approaches with clients. And you might, the listener might be asking why you just denounced it. And now you're saying that you utilize it and there is an explanation. It's not, uh, I'm not uh, schizophrenic on this topic, but so in any case, it was in the middle of 2012 that I said, what are some of the lessons that I can appropriate from that period as a trader that worked so well that I th- that could in fact be a solution here um, in a in an investing framework rather than a trading frame framework? And we can talk about those. But how about you? Yeah, yeah, that's great, Eric. And drawing on those lessons is uh is is, is really great. You know, just using that experience, using those you know different market environments that you're in. To, to kind of build your framework going forward, I think is uh, is really important because there are going to be times where your your investment uh, strategy or your practice, whatever it may be, is in favor and it's doing really well. And then there's going to be those times in certain market environments where it's going to have those pullbacks and not do as well. So just kind of having that built-in flexibility where you can make some changes as long as they're not emotional changes is good. So you can develop uh, an investment uh, practice or strategy over time that's built on past experiences, I think is, uh, is, is really good. Just always adapting because the markets are always changing. Technology is always changing. So having that built in flexibility while also dri- um, drawing on lessons and what happened in the past is, is, uh, is a really good way to look at it. Yeah. And Eric, actually, before you even mentioned how you were um uh you use modern portfolio theory because i use a modified version as well and i and i believe 
yours is has modifications that you've added to it is that correct i would say it's been augmented uh so that there's a portion that's modern portfolio theory when the other approaches aren't working <laughs> but but simple buying and holding is well and well i'm i'm before you even mention that and by the way i use a modified version as well for a portion of assets also uh i was going to say in that uh decline you know that happened between 2007 and 2009 modern portfolio theory did outperform the broad markets right but but um the question i had at the time uh and and i still feel strongly about today is i just thought it wasn't good enough right like it, it did the markets crashed mod, and and i don't expect modern portfolio theory to lead to people making money the flaw that I saw at the time, similar to what you pointed out, is that the modern when you break modern portfolio theory down, it's all about diversification, right? When when one thing goes up, something else is going down, and when something else goes down, something else something else is going up, and it, it makes the ride smoother. The problem I saw at the time was with modern portfolio theory, how the flaw was everything went down. There was no place to escape except cash at the time. So that's where I thought, uh, and Eric and I have had these discussions at, at length before for everyone listening. We're both, we're both nerds in the, in the finance space. But um, uh, what you and I have, have discussed before is mathematically it's sound, right? You can't necessarily argue the math behind it, but I found there were a couple uh, issues that don't work for real, for real individuals with it. One is the time frame. The data set is so large and people, unless they've got endowment level assets, if you're investing for your retirement and your financial plan says you've got enough till age, uh, you know, till age 100, well, um, you don't have an unlimited time frame. So the, these uh, shorter term movements have a greater impact, right? So that, that was one, one issue of it. The other issue I found with the long data set and I saw this during the crash of um, of uh, uh, the crash that happened in '09. Is that when I was comparing bonds at the time, and I was looking at mortgage-backed securities, which had been absolutely crushed, and the modern portfolio theory software I was using was saying, "Well, you know, you can go for uh, mortgage-backed. I'm sorry, you can go. Don't waste your time with the mortgage-backed securities because you you can do treasuries, and you'll have a a similar outcome and what it, what I, what i found was the error was in the the data set being so large that you miss the opportunity for what could be short you you miss what could be short term opportunities right over 100 years that that um you know 40% crash in mortgage bonds kind of smooths out over 100 years but it it creates a really good opportunity to invest at the time so that would that was my my issues with it so uh, I started off saying uh, there were positives to it. One, once again, it did better than just investing straight in stocks. So you were protected to a certain degree. Uh, but I thought the flaws were the data set is so large that it, it, it just can't help individual as much as it should. No, I think actually, as we're having this conversation, it strikes me that we maybe ought to have an episode that's just a deep dive on really deconstructing and then reconstructing modern portfolio theory by the way i don't i at least from my vantage point i am not trying to make this an assault on uh, modern portfolio theory or a, an, any sort of an attempt to um 
may make a wholesale denouncement of it and and uh, dismiss it as a useful component. And as we've indicated by our previous indications that we still use it, I, I just think it's useful to understand um, the premises on which it's constructed. And then when, if those premises are flawed from time to time, they are, then, you know, what to, so that you're not taken by surprise. And which I think early, early in my own career in this role, I was somewhat taken by surprise. You, you did say one thing, modern portfolio theory worked to a certain extent, and I would agree with that during that downturn, a 60-40 portfolio was less damaged than was an all-stock portfolio. You, you could certainly say that. And uh, as it recovered, it didn't recover as swiftly, but it didn't have as much ground to make up. And so for quite some time, coming out of that, for, for someone who owned that 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, folks, 40% bonds is what we mean by that 60-40. For someone who owned that versus, let's say, opened, owned just the S&P 500, then it took, and probably until, uh, I'd say, at least 2013 before you saw the, the 100% stock ownership strategy outperform the 60-40. It took a long, long time for that to happen. So uh, at least, you know, I, I, but I do think that looking at this closely might be worth another episode at some point. The, the, the thing that I would say, it's maybe ever so slightly differently than you said, Roshan, is that the data sets, I think you've referenced the long, the long histories of, of the behaviors of these different building blocks, again, what we call asset classes, um, sometimes masks how how in certain short bursts they can behave dramatically differently from what their long terms their long term uh, relationships are and so part of the problem here it seems to me is that the 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 art part of modern portfolio theory it's billed as as is essentially a science but there is indeed an art because it's predicated, as we said earlier, on how things have done, how, how much they've grown in the past, how volatile they are in the past, and how correlated they are with other asset classes in the past. Here's one example of the art. How far should you look back to reach those determinations? And once you see that the things have moved out of phase with one another in ways that aren't characteristic or aren't they, that their historic records wouldn't have led you to believe that they would be quite that way right now how swiftly can you recalibrate the inputs into your modern portfolio theory model to to re uh, reassess what the expected returns should be so for example in the S&P 500 when it hit bottom in March of 2009 while its volatility could probably be known and its correlations could be broadly known over a long period of time, is its, is its historic return now, which is lower than it was 18 months ago, by virtue of it having a 50% drop, is its historic return now the best guide to how it will behave going forward? Actually, what you probably should do is precisely because it's, it has had this 50% drop in this phase. Our expectations about its forward return now should be more generous. And so 
recalibrating in accordance with the actual recent moves of these different asset classes, I think is a part that um, it makes a big difference. And that's where the art comes in is how does, how does a group that's charged or who makes it their business to form these, arrive at these expectations, how do they go about that? That's where their art comes in because they certainly do not all agree. Eric, you bring up a very good point here that I want to talk about too from a value investor's perspective. Um, and I believe Buffett's spoken on this, but it may not be him, it, it, but multiple people have. When you're constructing a portfolio using using modern portfolio theory, um, volatility is one of the inputs. I'm sorry, standard deviation, excuse me, is one of the inputs, right? And so a stock that has, like you mentioned earlier, if something has dropped by 50%, that's a huge standard deviation, and modern portfolio theory would limit your exposure to it because it has that huge standard deviation. Whereas a value investor is saying, well, if you thought the stock was a good deal at 100 bucks and now it's worth 50, it's an even better deal. Right? So that's, that's one of the, um, uh, one of the um, criticisms of it is that are you actually using the standard deviation or volatility as you should? Now, the, the the argument against the criticism there, though, is in order for you to have the mathematics work, you've got to have uniform uh, sets of data, right? And so you've got to use uh, standard deviation because there is no better better alternative. And, and as you mentioned already, I, I'm not criticizing the theory itself. What I am saying is in my experience, you... I'm not comfortable as an investor uh, and in advising people to put their money exclusively in this one strategy, especially in its in its purest purest form, just because I've lived through eras like 2000, 2009, and even uh, you know last year in 2020, where uh, where it did not provide enough as much protection as I would like. Right, just using the pure the pure theories. Yeah, that's that's interesting, Roshan. And I got I have kind of a question since we are talking a lot about like data and research. Um, it's for either you or Eric. Have you ever felt sometimes the data like in your practice over time has gotten in the way of maybe like a decision making where there have been all this there's all these big data sets out. There's been all these big market events. There's just so much out there and just weeding through all the data and just looking at all these, all this research, has it sometimes been like a, a challenge to kind of just look at all this information, like new information that's constantly coming out where let's just take it back like 20, 40 years ago where they didn't have as much information as we have to make a decision to kind of like formulate or maybe adjust your, your investment approach um, over time. Cause I know you two are very big into data, looking at the research, doing the, the analysis and it seems like doing more data, doing more research, doing more analysis can help you make a better investment decision. But sometimes you can do all the data it can line up perfectly, but it tends to just be the opposite. How did you kind of like work around that or how do you like um, move forward with that and like implement it in your approach? I would say, so the, the short answer is probably but being a data person, I don't have data to back up that assessment. And it does, it does remind me, <laughs> though, of um, there is a, a famous value fund that did a study uh, of their own investments in their own portfolios. 
and they they try to gauge uh, whether their additional research beyond just the the ratios actually had an impact, and the impact was very minimal. And they went back and looked at their performance uh, and their holdings back to like the seventies, I believe. So what they found was if they just bought based on the pure ratios without doing the additional research, and you know the pure ratios take up. Two percent of the time, and ninety-eight percent roughly, right, is on is on the additional research that it didn't really have a significant difference in in their performance overall. So that would be an argument against the data. But I, I didn't. I'll, I'll actually answer your question a little differently. Um, what the data does is, I think it helps you feel more comfortable making a decision, and in sometimes that could lead to um, maybe overconfidence or underconfidence in a, in a decision. Uh, and for example, I'll go back to what Eric had said earlier about uh, when the Fed was uh, pumping up the markets back in you know, 2009 and, and on, right? And that he was looking and concerned that there would be another, another leg down. Um, all the data suggested there would be, right? I remember reading multiple reports and white papers from uh, economic institutes that they they labeled this as a credit crisis or they use the term a belt tightening uh, market crash and every other time in history there was another recession and every and that other recession every other time in history was within if I remembered the data correctly it was either within three or four years right so the expectation was there will be another recession. That will lead to another decline, and that's what all the data was suggesting. And looking back, you, we all know now. Well, that data was wrong. We also know why it was wrong, or at least we believe it's because of all the money the Fed pumped in and the low interest rates. But that's just an example of um, of your question on uh, the data, where you know that's a case where if you ignored the data and you just looked and said everything's going straight up, you know, you, you would have done better than than being in the data, although. I don't know how comfortable you would have felt, right? Going going into that, it felt too risky at the time. So, Adrian, I think if I I, I thought I understood your question to be asking, um, number one is how has our reliance on data, insofar as it's continuously evolving, um, how has that been a benefit or a harm to us? Is it was that part of the the initial part of your question? Yeah, that's the, the first part. Like you said, like now people are are implementing algorithms into their uh, their, their investment strategy. It's just like technology is progressing further. So it seems like you have like like a broad range of um, areas to choose from now compared to how it used to be, where it's just coming through it all. Yeah. Well, so I will I will acknowledge that I think that that's an astute. First of all, that I think that's an astute question, and if we trace what's taking place in the um, popularity of certain approaches to investment over the last century or so, you see precisely that as new information and new technology for considering that information became available, people adapted to both the computing capability as well as the emergence of that information and shifted the way that they invested. Prior to Graham Dodd in the in the 20s and 30s and their introduction of an approach, um, I think the title of their book was Security Analysis. Most 
investments were made, uh, at least as I understand the history, by a good story being told about an interesting company that seemed like you know a good bet to where you could put put money. And with the introduction of security analysis, they showed no, it was possible to to if you were rigorous about the data that you collected on the companies of interest and then compared those data about them, in their case primarily related to their value and and how that is to say how much uh, how much you'd have to pay in order to buy a certain amount of profitability in that business or a certain amount of uh, sales in that business or a certain amount of cash flow, free cash flow in that business. They, they revolutionized that process. And then when in the early 50s, modern portfolio theory and the computing power that came with it that would allow you to, to measure these other attributes of asset classes, then that changed again. And more recently, more recently, to your point, once the desktop computer was introduced in the mid 80s and suddenly it became possible for little investment shops, they didn't need a supercomputer. <laughs> They didn't need a cray. They didn't need to be at a research institute. They could, in their own, you know, uh, spare bedroom or their, you know, little office space, begin to do certain amounts of programming and analysis and so forth. That made that made it many people to see things that they had never been able to see or measure or to make decisions upon before. And what when you've as that has advanced and computing power has advanced and the evolution of data has advanced, as you pointed out, Adrian, more and more people have turned from a qualitative approach to investing to a quantitative approach to investing. Much of the movement in the markets today is I don't mean literally on this date as we're recording, but I mean in our time. Much of the movement of the markets that seems at times to be uh, a uh, herd mentality and extremely swift moves, like the move that we saw in response in, in early 2000 to the, to the recognition that, wait, maybe this coronavirus is a bigger deal than we've all been understanding it to be. How do you get a 35% decline in the market so swiftly, the fastest such decline of its kind? It's a lot of that has to do with algorithmic tra- trading where the, these computers have been programmed based on a set of rules that were derived from a set of data and analysis on that data to sell at the, at the instant that they see certain conditions triggering it um, have been satisfied, and boom, then the, they, if they sell and they begin to sell. And if that happens simultaneously because everybody has used the same data and has arrived at roughly the same cr- conclusions, and has on the basis of those relatively same conclusions programmed their, their computers to, to adhere to essentially the same rules, what you see are these um, rel- very rapid movements, particularly to the downside, because the selling impulse is, is uh, it seems there's more agreement on that than there is on the buying impulse. It, it's the, the place of data and computing power has, I think, permanently altered the landscape for investors. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Eric. I mean, it's just been kind of in the back of my mind recently as I develop my own methodology and just how important technology is becoming and advancing over time, kind of how that relationship's kind of going to go hand in hand with my own practice in the future, just 
developing my own investment methodology and incorporating the relationship that technology is going to play in. And I know it's just going to be something I'm just going to have to review like annually at this point, just the way how things are progressing. It's just something that I'm just going to constantly be just looking into. Yeah. Well, you have, it's, I'm excited for you, Adrian, because I mean, you have, depending on how long you want to persist in this career, but 40 or 50 years to see what Roshan has only 30 years and I have maybe 10 or 15 to see. So it's like, it's, uh, it's great. I'm excited for you. Hey, fellas, I would say I am noticing our timing and, and I'm, I'm thinking maybe it makes sense for us to, to pause and then return to this next week and sort of keep our, like the, the episodes of Batman in the 60s where they'd, they'd have this dramatic interruption and then they'd have to continue next week. I, I'm really interested to hear what, not only how you got to this place, but what informs your thinking about investing now? And we can share with our listeners that. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I want to I want to add one more thing, and then I agree with you. We'll continue. So today we've talked primarily about modern portfolio theory, and um, probably ended up bashing it more than we intended to. But I want to I want to close <laughs> the modern portfolio theory uh, conversation by asking you what modifications have you made to uh, the portion of the portfolio you use. Uh, for modern portfolio theory. So I think I've approached it differently than you, Roshan. So what I've done is uh, f- I've offered to clients the, the opportunity to augment modern portfolio theory with a variety of other approaches. And some of those are what we'll, we'll, we can maybe detail next time, what I'll say are factor-based approaches. And then some of those are getting outside of the space of publicly traded securities and using private placements for accredited investors in particular in on both the equity and the debt side that's that's been the main um offering as an alternative to an exclusive approach to modern portfolio theory i think yours is a little bit more systematic and 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 uniformly applied to your client base based on uh, than than is mine based on earlier conversations we've had about this. Yeah, so it's uh, the strategy if used is uniform but uh for someone who's using it within their risk tolerance but it's definitely not applied to everyone the same just because of them personally their uh thoughts, their risk profile and so on but so uh, just one follow up and then and then I'm going to answer my own question about modifications. So when someone is using modern portfolio theory with you, you're using the purely a uh, statistical data-driven output and the various asset classes as indicated by the purest sense of modern portfolio theory. Is that correct? I am, although uh, even there, there, just we should acknowledge there's art. Yes. Because you have the option of constraining, and we can maybe talk about that next time, constraining the model to limit how much it can allocate to any single asset class, or conversely, you can say remove all the constraints. And if you just, even if it meant that you concentrated all of the assets into three or four asset classes, where would, how heavily would you use those asset classes? So there is, there is an art to a certain extent in the application of or the absence of those constraints. But, and then the, the second thing is, is which of the various, capital market assumptions are you going to 
appropriate for use within that within that what we'll call i will use a technical term here it's known as mean variance optimization um, that's the mathematical pr procedure behind modern portfolio theory so you know which whose capital market assumptions do you appropriate into that irrespective of your decisions about the constraint so there is an art to that i would say I completely agree. And even with using this uh, theory in general, there is an art. Now, I approach it a little bit different from you where I don't use it in its purest sense. I've created some modifications that I do first on the individual level with risk tolerance. I'll look at valuations and where we are in the business cycle. And I will then have a conversation with you with adjusting your risk tolerance. So, for example, if I think we're at, um, an early stage where I'm expecting a boom and Eric, you are a moderate investor. I'll have a conversation with you about, do you want to stay moderate or do you want to slightly increase your exposure to stocks based on current market valuations? So that's one modification I'll make because um, uh, to me that addresses the length of the data and some of the issues where you miss short-term opportunities where I viewed it as such with modern portfolio theory. The other thing I'll do is I will tend to, or I will actually focus more on asset classes that have um, uh, lower statistical and to a certain degree negative correlation so that we have, um, so that what was missing for me in 2009 was that everything was going down and there was nowhere to hide, so to speak, is that now there is a place to hide. So it's not just the pure math, it's also making sure there's a, core, uh, a negative correlation to a certain degree by each asset class. That's something that, um, that I researched and learned along the, the way, but then I felt validated when I had read uh, uh, it, that Bridgewater and uh, Ray Dalio's book, they have something similar there. So I thought, okay, well, the, the smart guys are doing something, <laughs> something similar in there. So going back to Adrian, your question about the... Um, uh, the data and the statistics and uh, if, if it can be too much, well, that's a scenario where I feel like I've helped address what I thought was lacking. And then I was able to find something else that validated, but their data uh, was a lot more robust than mine. I think I had looked back 20 years and they'd gone back much farther at Bridgewater. Um, Adrian, one other thing you mentioned earlier that I just wanted to say when you were talking about developing your strategy is uh, is one thing that I find uh, important, and I'll, I guess I'll use this to, to wrap it up unless either of you have anything to add. We started this conversation saying, as an investor, you've got to find what's right for you. I've used the term on here before where I say you've got to find out your investor personality, You know what fits, what are you comfortable with? And I think very much our conversation today is about that journey, but everyone's journey will be a little bit different because it's got to be within your uh, your comfort zone as an, as an investor. So finding that, and I, uh, the other valuable point I think we have today um, is showing how it evolved, right? We started out at one place and with our experience, it slowly evolved. And some of that experience is looking at data. And a, a lot of that experience is also living through what's happened in the markets. Well, yeah, I just want to say to our listeners, so you, you've probably heard the most autobiographical uh, episode that we've, 
we've done to date. So I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated because I don't know a lot of the, the things about your, your process and your story in this way, Roshan. And um, so I'm excited to learn more next week. As am I. It's interesting that our, our timing overlaps and some of our decisions overlap, but how we got to them are very different. Adrian, any closing, uh, closing thoughts on uh, anything, modern portfolio theory, or anything for the listeners? Um, I, I've enjoyed our discussion today. Like Eric mentioned, it's kind of um, a good, like, deep look into how your practices develop over time. So I appreciate you sharing that today. It was great. And for the listeners, we will continue on this topic to tell you uh, we've touched on how we started with modern portfolio theory, how we've adjusted and evolved. Uh, or at least started to adjust and evolve from that, but we'll continue uh, sharing information to where we've got, gotten, and we're providing all this, hoping it can help you in making better investment decisions yourself. Uh, thank you very much for, for listening. We will have a lot more to come, and please like, subscribe, give us five stars, tell, tell your friends and family about us. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show, and we'll be back to you next week. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question, or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance, by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube audio library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening. <laughs>